Section 39 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Concluding Chapter, Part 2, Social Condition of the Period, Domestic Habits, Food, and Dress of the People. On looking into the social condition of the period, the first fact which strikes us is that the elements of society were in those days so simple and so few. There was first the sovereign, nominally subject to the laws, but invested with ill-defined hereditary prerogatives, scarcely diminished from those first yielded to William the Norman by a conquered and prostrate country. There were the powerful aristocratic class, beginning with the kinsmen and connections of the king, and ending with the greater barons who all held their fiefs or estates by barony or in chief from the crown. These constituted the great men of the land, les grounds de la terre, as they were constantly called, and like the bishops, les prelats, who also held directly under the crown, and certain mitred abbots of monasteries, had the right of being summoned personally to Parliament. There is a good deal of obscurity still attaching to the position of the lesser barons, as those lords were called, who could command the services of a number of knights holding fiefs under them, but who, by reason of more recent creation, alienation, forfeiture, or subdivision of estates, were not in possession of ancient hereditary privileges. These the king appears to have summoned to Parliament or not at his discretion. Next in rank came the knights' bannerets, who, though not ennobled, were like the barons, in possession of a plurality of knights' fees, could bring vassal knights into the field, and were consequently entitled to cut off the long streamer of the pennon of the knight bachelor, and thus convert it into the square banner, as John of Chandos did for the first time on the field of Navarrete. To be a knight, even of the lowest class, was to be gentle, and placed a man on a footing of equality in arms with the highest noble of the land. But this theory had, to a great extent, given way in this transition period, and enactments were not unfrequently made or renewed, compelling all persons in possession of a certain income to take up the order of knighthood, partly with the view of securing the fees for the king's exchequer, and partly to enable him to command their military services with greater speed and certainty. Still the knights, whatever their original status, looked upon themselves as belonging to the aristocracy, and shrank from contamination with the trading classes, who were often their superiors in wealth, education, and intelligence. It was only in the parliamentary struggle, as has so often happened in practical England, that the strong class feeling yielded to considerations of a common political interest. For nothing short of a close union of forces between the knights of the shires and the mercantile representatives of the towns could have enabled them to maintain the war of independence of the 14th century against the nobles and the crown. The great English middle class was the growth of a later age, but no doubt the nucleus of it was created by the stimulus given to trade and commerce in the reign of Edward III. His constant prohibition and removal of prohibitions on the export of wool, though contrary to all sound principles of political economy, 
were one of the chief causes which led to a third, and this time a friendly, continental invasion of Britain, bearing in some of its aspects no less importantly on her future than that of the English or of the Normans. For the French-Flemish weavers, who could not carry on their finer manufactures without a regular supply of English wool, came over in large numbers and settled on the eastern coasts. They were constantly in want of fresh hands, and as they offered high wages, a continual immigration took place from all parts of England to the Norfolk towns, where the weavers chiefly established themselves. It became their interest to harbor and conceal the fugitive serfs or villains who fled from the forced labor which they were compelled to render at home to their lords, for by a residence of a year and a day in any town, a serf acquired the right of disposing of his labor when and where he pleased. This district of England was already in constant communication with the northern ports of Europe, for Yarmouth, Lynn, and Blakeney were already famous emporiums for the Baltic trade, just then beginning to become a highly important interest. Fish being a necessary of life in Roman Catholic countries, the comparative failure of the fisheries which had taken place on the northern coasts of Europe had induced numbers of traders from the Hansa towns in the north of Germany to settle on the coast of Norfolk, in order to export red herrings and other dried fish for the wants of the faithful in their own old continental homes. The ships which conveyed the herrings thither brought back supplies of tallow and other Baltic produce, especially furs, then worn by all persons of a certain rank in England, from the unexplored forests of Russia. These traders were known by the name of Easterlings, and an interesting evidence, perhaps of the character of their trading, certainly of the esteem in which their money was held, has come down to us in the familiar word sterling, which we apply to coin of known and unquestioned purity, and which is now in fact appropriated in common usage to our English coin. In order to realize the close ties which united King Edward with Van Arteveld and the burgomasters of the Hansa towns, we have only to remember that the eastern counties were then swarming with traders and workers, much in the same way as the northwestern are at present. The great fair at Stourbridge, now scarcely remembered on the spot, was a world-famous gathering in those days, and rivaled the great fair of Novgorod in Russia. It lasted three weeks in every September. Temporary streets and bazaars were erected for the sale of all then-known articles of commerce. The neighboring harbors were crammed with the ships of every nation, from which had disembarked the Venetians and Genoese with the produce of the Far East and their own country, velvets and silks and armor, the Spaniards with war-horses and iron, the Norwegians with their pitch, the Gascons with their wine, the Easterlings with their tallow and furs. This tide of importation from abroad was met by another setting from the interior of England, salt from Worcestershire, lead from Derbyshire, dairy and farm produce brought by the bailiff from many a near and distant manor, and the famous English wool-packs which manufacturers from north and south of Europe would bid against each other to secure. So prized were sheep of the English stock 
that it was forbidden by law to sell or export rams for the improvement of foreign breeds. But there is a tradition that a few of these animals surreptitiously conveyed over sea were the ancestors of the famous Spanish merinos. The exportation of iron, which used to be smelted in Sussex, was forbidden by Act of Parliament in 1354. Next, in the social scale, to the opulent and the enterprising trader, came the sturdy yeomen, or tenant farmers, who had for generations held their land in free sockage, as it was called, either by a fixed rent or by service to their lord, and formed the strength of the English army as long bowmen and men-at-arms. Below these came the class of villains or serfs, who could not quit the manor on which they were born, were liable to forced labor, had to pay a fine on marriage or on sending a child to school, or virtually on any other occasion which the Lord might make a pretext for attacking their little hordes. In time of war, the serf might be impressed, though only a boy of sixteen, or a man, in those days an elderly man, of fifty or sixty, and sent into battle armed only with a quilted jacket, skull-cap, knife, and lance, to stand up against the hardy strokes of knights and men-at-arms carrying mail and battle-axe. All that they had to expect was, in case of their side being victorious, to rush in and stab and rifle the fallen foe, or in case of defeat, to be slaughtered without mercy, adding perhaps a cipher to the sum total of the slain. Their cottages were miserable huts made of wattle plastered with mud, often standing below the level of the soil, with one apartment only and no chimneys, windows, or ventilation. Their habits were filthy. Scurvy and leprosy made fearful ravages among them, partly on account of the total neglect of the commonest precautions for health and cleanliness, and partly on account of their having to go for months together without fresh meat or vegetables. It was the custom of the times on the 10th of November in each year to kill off all the cattle not wanted for stock, and to salt down the meat for winter use. They had, of course, no potatoes nor any other esculent roots except onions, no vegetables except cabbage. Wheat was upon the whole remarkably cheap, if we consider the wretched system of agriculture in those days. A penny would purchase six pounds. Meat was also cheap. Neither beef nor mutton cost more than a farthing a pound. Butter and cheese about a half penny. All this while the lowest rate of wages, even before the rise occasioned by the Black Death, was three pence a day. Wycliffe says that the poor in his time lived longer and better than the rich. Melius et diutius we want quat corpus. And the Spanish ambassador of Philip II, two centuries later, writes thus to his master. These peasants live like hogs, but they fare as well as the king. Their dress consisted of a rough pair of shoes, frequently of untanned leather, a pair of galligaskins, breeches of leather, and a frock of russet or undyed wool, for they were forbidden by law to wear a more costly material. The dress of the middle class was of much the same make, but of finer texture, for it was in this particular that the gradations of rank were statutably marked. Its cut may be seen any day in the alderman's gown, in the dress of the scholars of Christ's Hospital, and in Ocleve's well-known portrait of the poet Chaucer. 
The nobles, however, vied with each other in the splendor, costliness, and extravagance of their clothing. Both sexes wore in Edward III's reign a tight-fitting vest called a catardi, from the sleeves of which hung long slips of cloth, and over this a large flowing mantle, buttoned at the shoulder, of scarlet or some equally brilliant color, the edges, dagged or jagged, and cut in the form of leaves. The cotardi was gorgeously embroidered, and the whole of the costume was of the most costly and showy materials that could be procured. It is said that feathers were then first worn in hats. They had small hoods tied under the chin and set with gold, silver, and precious stones. Lyra pipes or tippets hung round the neck and down to the feet, all dagged. The hose were pied or party-colored. Their shoes and pattens sandaled and pinked more than a finger long, bending upwards, which they called crack hose, resembling the claws of birds, and looped up to the knees with chains of gold and silver. Ladies' hair was gathered up and confined in a band of gold thread, and there was as much freedom in the shape and arrangement of the mass as prevails at the present time. The head was, however, in those days enveloped in a kerchief, couvrechet, the neck swathed in a napkin. Chaucer's description of the Canterbury pilgrims is a repertory of information in the dress of his day. He says of the wife of Bath, supposed to be a well-dressed woman, Her gour sheaves were full fine of grund. He does to swear they weren't a pound, that on the Sunday weren't yet a ed. Her ozen weren't a fine scarlet red. Full straighty teed, Upon an ambler easily she sat, he wimpled well, and on her head a at, as broad as is a buckler or a targa. A foot a month labuter ipis larga, and on her fate a pair of spores sharp. The great art of the age was architecture. Monasteries and abbeys were no longer built, for the taste of the times had changed. But manors, hospitals, castles, schools, and colleges were then erected, which modern architects can only feebly imitate. The manor house in which the bailiff frequently lived in his lord's absence may be taken as the typical dwelling of the period, for the feudal castle differed from it only in a multiplication of the same simple arrangement of elements. It consisted of a central building, with an enclosure surrounded by a ditch and palings. The building itself contained a large hall running up to the open tiling of the roof, in which the family and servants ate their meals and lived during the day, and the latter slept by night, either on the rush-strewn floor or on benches round the walls, the garment of the day serving for the coverlet at night. A door at one end of the hall opened into the chamber or sleeping room of the females of the family, and another door at the other end into the stable. In smaller houses of this class, cooking, like all other domestic processes, went on in the hall, but in those of more pretension a kitchen took the place of the stable, and a solar or upper chamber was built over the sleeping apartment approached most commonly by an external staircase, and toward the end of the eleventh century a parloir or parlor, so called, from being the room for interviews, was added. The hall was the room of the house, 
and in addition to the uses already described, it was the place in which small offenses were tried and justice administered. The manor court, presided over by the seneschal or steward, in the absence of the lord, was not unlike the local magistracy of our day. These courts exercised police powers in cases of trespass, evasion of duty, false weights, and breaches of the peace. But many of them possessed what was known as the high jurisdiction, the right of fossa and furca, that is, of hanging male and drowning female criminals. The door of the hall generally stood open in token of hospitality, but it was a breach of good manners for the passer-by to look in. The hall had no chimneys, and the smoke found its way out as it could. Nor was this so difficult as it might seem, for the roof was very imperfectly fitted, and the openings through which light was admitted were either unprotected or filled up with a cross-barred grating by day and a curtain or shutter by night. Glass for windows was unknown except in the palaces of kings, and rarely found even in these. The furniture was of the simplest kind. The seats were either slabs in recesses of the wall or boards laid upon trestles. The table at which in the humbler manners the whole household took their meals together was constructed in the same manner and removed when not wanted. In the houses of a higher class there was generally a dais or slightly raised platform at the upper end on which stood a permanent or dormant table for the use of the family and honored guests. Two or more perches or wooden frames were fixed to the wall, and on one of them sat the domestic birds, hawks, falcons, and etc., and on the other were suspended articles of clothing of various kinds, and frequently armor. Another common article of furniture was the dresser, a series of shelves for exhibiting the plate at banquets, frequently so high as to require steps to be provided to enable the servants to reach the upper shelves. Our ancestors in the 14th century kept early hours. It was the custom to rise with the sun, and we read of a party who was ridiculed at having overslept themselves when found in bed at six. The usual dinner hour was nine in the morning. The family were summoned to it by the blowing of horns, and the first step after assembling in the hall for meals was washing the hands, for which purpose each guest was served with a basin, ewer, and towel. It was not till after the guests were seated round the table that the cloth was laid. On it were then set the salt cellars, knives, occasionally spoons, and bread and cups of wine. There were no forks nor plates. The fingers were thought to answer all the purposes of the former, and instead of the latter, each couple of guests had between them a large tranchoir or trencher, that is to say, a thick, flat slice of bread of second quality, on which a portion of fish or meat sufficient for two was laid, and on which it was carved, the gravy, as a rule, running through upon the tablecloth. As soon as the course was finished, the trenchers were thrown into the alms-basket for the use of the poor, at the conclusion of the meal, the table was removed. Basins and ewers were a second time supplied for washing the hands, which doubtless was by this time again necessary, and cups of wine were handed round to the guests, still sitting as at dinner, after which the minstrels were introduced. The minstrels, or jongleurs, so called from a corruption of jougleur or 
yoculatores, our jugglers, were an important class in the Middle Ages and an indispensable element at a festival. They led a life of perpetual wandering and were always welcome, partly for their art's sake and partly for the sake of the news which they brought, for news was then a scarce commodity. If the after-dinner guests were in a serious mood, the jonglers would sing old romances of love and chivalry. If they found the company mirthfully disposed, they sang satirical and political songs, or related amusing stories, or exhibited feats of tumbling and sleight of hand, and their tales, songs, and performances were often of a character which painfully illustrates the coarse licentiousness at this time pervading all classes of society. The fourteenth century was not a busy or industrious age. People who lived in the country were in no hurry to break up the social gathering, and after the meal, says a contemporary romance, they then go to play as each likes best, either in forests or on rivers, that is, hawking. For waterfowl such as the heron and the teal were the chief quarry or prey of the hawk, or in amusements of other kinds, chess, tables, and dice. The evening meal was at five o'clock, after which we are told the family usually went to bed, for artificial light was bad and dear. Wax was used only in palaces and churches, and even tallow was tuppence per pound an enormous price. A candle offered at the shrine of a saint was in the truest sense an oblation, for it cost the bearer the sacrifice of a rare personal pleasure. Wood fires were almost universal. Charcoal, indeed, was occasionally used in the dwellings of the rich, but coal appears to have been employed for smelting purposes only. Reading was no common accomplishment, and books, being of course still written with the hand, were few and beyond the reach of all but the richest, and the chief intellectual entertainment of well-to-do persons was to listen to the songs or recitations of the professional jongleur or those of amateurs belonging to their own class who were well-versed in such lore. End of section 39